It is not revolutionary, nor is it helpful to say films from the past are problematic. <laughs> films from now are problematic. <laughs> what needs to be considered is, is there a value in watching them? And if so, how are you going to address those problematic aspects? This week on the Interstates, Alicia Cosma has some answers. But first, we'll remind ourselves about the pleasures of old film. That's all coming up after this. Media in the 20th century feels mostly frictionless, doesn't it? Like you open an app and stream a podcast, I see you there, listener, or watch a video. Between YouTube and Spotify and Netflix, you can watch anything and everything all of the time, as the song puts it. I mean, there are still hiccups. Your internet goes out, HBO says, oops, something went wrong, or you still have to watch all the commercials on Hulu. But the only object you're dealing with is the device that's connecting you to the cloud. No more records with their scratching and skipping. Cassettes with their hum. VHS tapes. Better rewind that before you go back to the video store. Or that floppy disk. But the computer is uh, still trying to read. So, you heard all that, right? For a brief moment in human history, those were the sounds that accompanied our stories. Before that, other than books, there was no mediation between you and a good yarn. Just an actual human relaying a legend or singing a song. If there was a sound accompanying it, it was probably a lute. No friction. 20th century media, though? Lots of friction. Lots of sound waves. And the individual records and tapes had their own characters. Like, I had this Sesame Street record that would always skip in the same place because it had an actual scratch. I could have gotten a different copy of the record if I hadn't been six years old, but it was kind of nice to know the sounds of my record. So, why this trip down memory lane? Because today's episode is about the pleasures and perils of old film and movies. Later on, we'll hear from our favorite cinema director, Alicia Cosma, about how she thinks about movies that reflect... uh, to put it gently, outdated attitudes about race and gender, among other things. But first, we heard about this film series here in Bloomington that got started because of old film, like actual old film reels from the basement of the Lilly Library here on the Indiana University campus. So we sent Jack Lindner to find out more. To the rest world, in a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. Too late, they start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make them an offer again with you. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. For most of their history, movies were made on 35 millimeter film. Then, about 15 years ago, smartphones showed up, and they drastically changed how we make and how we watch films. Toto, I'm repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. Now almost anyone can make a movie, and we're flooded with endless content from YouTube and streaming services. In this technology-driven era of filmmaking, we can oftentimes take our prior filmmaking practices for granted. 
Without 16 and 35mm film reels, the idea of the motion picture would not exist today. And without movie theaters, we would lose that one-of-a-kind environment that has made movie watching a one-of-a-kind experience. While the future of the film industry is exciting, it's important for us to remember the significance of both physical film and the theater-going experience. For Caleb Allison, one way that we can honor these classic traditions is by simply watching classic films in their traditional format, in a theater, on a big screen, in 35mm. I met up with him in a coffee shop to talk about it. The cinema does everything they can to offer it up on film, because it does give you a different perspective and a different viewing experience. I keep saying this, but you really can see the history of a print on the screen that makes it a unique object, you know, and not just a digital copy that's exactly the same anywhere you watch it any time. 35 millimeter projected print is a unique experience every time. Caleb is a PhD candidate in the Cinema and Media Studies program at IU. He's also the curator of the City Lights film series, a Bloomington film series that screens movies to the public in their original 16 and 35 millimeter formats. The series draws from the archives of a film collector named David S. Bradley. As the curator for the series, Caleb is in charge of selecting three films from the Bradley collection that will be presented during the next season. And normally we get three films from the Bradley collection or that are inspired by the Bradley collection. And that's part of the job is just to really understand what's in this collection and how those three films fit together and create kind of a cohesive program that represent the classics of world cinema. The three films chosen for the spring 2023 season included Robert Bresson's A Man Escaped, Sidney Pollock's They Shoot Horses, Don't They, and Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 classic Rear Window which was displayed 25 years ago during the series' first set of screens. There's nothing to see. What do you there is something. I've seen it through that window. I've seen bickering and family quarrels and mysterious trips at night, knives and saws and ropes. And now since the series was founded in 1997 by IU graduate students Drew Todd and Eric Beckstrom. I sat down with Eric to take a trip down memory lane to explore what inspired him and Drew to create the series as well as what they hoped to achieve with it. If someone were to come up to you and ask you, you know, what is City Lights, you know, how would you best describe it to them? The character of the series is a little different now, but I would say that at the heart and soul of the series is to put films in front of people on a screen that they might not otherwise ever have the chance to see on the screen and to move the focus away from such an exclusive emphasis on American cinema and open the door to international screenings. We wanted it to be a community film series and not just something that was sort of merely associated with Indiana University. And that is definitely at the core of the purpose of IU Cinema as well. They're not just a university cinema. They try very hard to be a community cinema. Eric's love for filmmaking and storytelling came at a very young age. You know, I grew up in the 70s shortly after all of the major movie studios had sold the broadcast rights to their catalogs to television. And so I grew up in the 70s watching all these old Hollywood movies uh, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And I remember Cary Grant, Sidney Poitier, James Stewart, 
Gene Arthur, Sidney Greenstreet, and everybody who was in Casablanca, essentially all those actors, it had a huge impact on me. And I had a love of storytelling, I think literally from the time I was three or four. Some of my earliest memories are seeing Rod Serling on the television. So that's probably where it had its root. You're traveling you know, it's interesting because... I didn't really have any interaction with 16 millimeter until City Lights. And so Drew and I were talking about what's happening on campus in terms of film screenings. And we learned pretty early on that there really wasn't any screening of celluloid consistently and certainly not world cinema. We just couldn't believe that there wasn't a film series on this campus. And so it just so happens that what we had access to was 16 millimeter, which taps into the very reason 16 millimeter came into existence, which was greater accessibility. So I think City Lights, in some ways, was one of the last vestiges of tapping into the true purpose of 16 millimeter. 16mm was a monumental innovation when it was first introduced in 1923. Unlike 35mm, which was only available to filmmakers and movie studios, the 16mm camera was portable enough for average people, or anybody who could afford it, to purchase one. This new camera, and the film inside, allowed average people the access to document important events in their lives, and to create their own movies from home. Eric and Drew's passion for displaying films in their traditional format proved to be just as popular among Bloomington residents during their first ever screening. You know, the first night, I mean, we filled the place. And we were, I think, both pleasantly shocked at how many people showed up. I mean, there was this palpable enthusiasm. And I remember the very first screening, we walked up on stage in, in Ballantyne. And with absolutely no indication that this was going to happen, people just started clapping. And I think we were both rather bemused and slightly awkward and embarrassed. <laughs> and, and I think it really reflected the level of, there was just this yearning for screenings of films on a screen with an audience that weren't just the stuff that you were going to go see at the local theater downtown. During their time at IU, Eric and Drew helped to grow the series' audience by providing a traditional moviegoing experience. Unlike modern movie theaters where 30 minutes of ads are played before the film, Eric and Drew would play short films from the Glime collection before showing the feature films from the Bradley collection. According to Eric, the film selection process was just as arduous as preparing for the actual screening with an audience. So we would go through and we would pre-screen films in the basement of Franklin Hall, and we would have this very loud 16-millimeter projector next to our head, and we would pre-screen them to make sure that they weren't missing large chunks or were just not in screenable condition. We had to not screen some, you know, that were in too rough a condition, and it was very painful um, to have to, to pass on a film because of that. Was there a particular film that you remember that you didn't get the chance to screen, but you really wish that you could have? I do remember one snafu where I think we had pre-screened The Searchers, but somehow we missed the fact that the very, very famous last few frames were missing from the print. There's a very famous scene at the end where John Wayne's character walks out onto the porch and you see the door close and he's out there alone. And that little two-second scene is one of the most famous scenes from, from any film from that era and it was missing and we were just gobsmacked when we screened it. So everything didn't always go off <laughs> without a hitch. Retelling these stories brought a huge smile to Eric's face. 
He said that the semesters he spent running the series with Drew were some of his favorite moments from his time at IU. It is one of our core memories of that time. I can speak on Drew's behalf and say that it is, like mine, one of his favorite memories of all time. It was extremely gratifying. I think we both felt like we were doing something for the community, for the campus, frankly, self-indulgent, you know, in a way, because we had access to these prints. And seeing an audience sit together and experience that film together and being a part of that opportunity was just extraordinarily gratifying. I mentioned earlier that City Lights gets a lot of its films from the David S. Bradley Film Collection. That collection is housed at the Lilly Library, which is Indiana University's special collections library. The Bradley Collection sits alongside material from some of film history's greats, like Orson Welles, John Ford, and film critic Pauline Kael. You've probably heard of them, but maybe you haven't heard of David S. Bradley. So how did his collection draw so much attention from people across the film industry? So my name is Rachel Stolci. I am actually the founding director of the IU Library's Moving Image Archive, which we founded in 2010. And we're doing a lot of work right now trying to advocate for current filmmakers to preserve their own films and getting information out there about the fragility of digital formats. Rachel Stolci is a film archivist who has processed the majority of the motion picture film collections at Lilly Library. She spent five years researching, processing, and restoring the films in the Bradley Collection after it first arrived at the library in 1997. In that time, her work led to her learning more about Bradley's life, career, and the collection he worked so hard to preserve. I spent four or five years with it, and I feel like you really get to know a person (laughs) from their collection. Bradley was born and grew up in Winnetka, Illinois, just north of Chicago. It was in the Windy City that Bradley developed his passion for filmmaking, and it was in this city where he began his career alongside a future Hollywood legend. So David Bradley's interesting. He he was a student at Northwestern in Chicago, and he made um, his first early films, I think 1941, was Pierre Gint, um, which he made with a really young Charlton Heston, who really had to step up. I think he, I think he was 17, maybe, at the time. Pierre Gint was Heston's screen acting debut, and it's based on the Henrik Ibsen play of the same name. Bradley would later team up with Heston again in 1950 for his film adaptation of Julius Caesar, with Heston playing the role of Mark Antony. Heston would go on to become one of Hollywood's greatest leading men, thanks to his roles in biblical epics such as Moses in the Ten Commandments and Judea in Ben-Hur. Bradley's career, on the other hand, was starting to fizzle thanks to some questionable choices. And then he made a lot of sort of B-films. They saved Hitler's brain. You heard her right. In 1968 the same year that his friend Charlton Heston starred in Planet of the Apes, David Bradley released his latest film titled They Saved Hitler's Brain. A film with that kind of title was about as successful as one might expect. And I think uh, They Saved Hitler's Brain has made it to like the worst movies of all time list before. And it is, it is astonishing they carry around Hitler's head in a box, but he's, he's talking all the time. So, After multiple box office failures, Bradley called it quits on filmmaking. But rather than completely leaving the industry, he turned to another passion to keep his love for movies alive, collecting. Thanks to the connections he made in the industry, Bradley's archive quickly began to grow into a magnificent assortment of 16 and 35 millimeter film reels, production photos, letters, and other items across multiple eras of film history. There are about 2,600 titles. Uh, It works out to be about 5,800 reels of film. So some titles have multiple reels. So about 
2700, I think. But so he starts really, if you started to, to scope it out chronologically, it has the very first film, so 1894, um, and around the world, right? So there's a whole series of like early French silent films or um, Russian films, or there's so, it's sort of a comprehensive, lovely history of film from 1894 up to, I feel like the last, the very last film they have maybe is Kramer versus Kramer, so maybe in the early 80s. What about Philly? I'm not taking him with me. Are no good for him. As Rachel said, part of what made the Bradley collection so unique was the variety of 16 and 35 millimeter films that he archived including a few early silent films that, as far as they know, do not exist anywhere else in the world. There are, in fact, I've narrowed it down, there's just two films in the collection that are truly, that don't exist elsewhere. So I'm working on a, a restoration of that one. That for years, I thought there were four titles that didn't exist elsewhere. But about five years ago, I spent a lot more time just really diving into it. <laughs> And I did find the Academy Film Archive had recently found one of them. So we have been spending, we spent like the last three years working on Sky High Corral, which is a silent Western that I think will be fun for us to screen and share with the world. Before Bradley's death in 1997, he was in contact with multiple film organizations to decide who he wanted to will his collection to after he passed. He had willed the collection to a lot of different organizations. He would get upset with the organization, so Northwestern, I think UCLA, maybe the Academy Film Archive, and then he would take them out of his will. <laughs> so he willed them to the Lily, probably to be with Orson Welles and John Ford and some of the greats. Before it actually landed here, the Academy Film Archive asked if they could just store it for us and process it, and we could retrieve film prints. This is how unique and valuable this was perceived, right? But they truly have some of the most historically important film collections from sort of the greats. So Orson Welles, John Ford, Pauline Kael's papers. They have such a, a rich, already amazing body of lots of bodies of work that I would guess that was part of his draw. All right, it's time for a break. You're listening to producer Jack Lindner's story about the pleasures of old film. When we come back, Jack heads into the archives, where he finds himself transported back to the set of Metropolis. This is Interstates. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and we're getting a tour with producer Jack Lindner of the archives of David Bradley. Bradley was a filmmaker whose career was uh, among the less successful of the mid-20th century filmmakers. But once he accepted that, he focused his energy on collecting. I'll let Jack take it from here. Because this story is about the importance of 16 and 35 millimeter, I wanted to examine the collection for myself to get a better understanding of both the archives and the man who brought it together. I set up a meeting with Erica Dowell, the associate director and curator of modern books and manuscripts at Lilly Library. Erica was kind enough to bring out a few boxes from the Bradley collection to let me examine. Right. I just requested two boxes of materials from the David Bradley papers. The Cole collection includes 124 boxes that includes all kinds of paper documents, photographs, but also uh, film elements. We couldn't get access to any physical film reels from the collection but Erica came prepared with other items that were just as fascinating. The photograph collection includes uh, both photographs from David Bradley's films that he made, 
For instance, this folder, which has stills from Pierre Gint, promotional uh, posters, and plenty of, of stills from the actual action of the film. It also includes film stills that he collected about other types of films. For instance, here's uh, the famous Metropolis. So those are clippings and programs, things like that. And then here in the second folder for Metropolis, again, a whole bunch of film stills that it's likely that he collected from various places. You can see that some of these are... As I looked at all these photographs from the archives, it felt like I was being transported back to 1927 to the set of Metropolis. The stills captured many iconic moments from the film, and for me, they really put into perspective the countless hours that must have gone into creating such a technologically advanced world for this film. Another photo we found showed the movie's two cinematographers, Guter Rintau and Karl Frund, with two giant Mitchell cameras on either side of them. In between both men is fellow cinematographer Charles Roscher. Karl Frund would go on to be the cinematographer for the original Dracula, and the cinematographer for over 150 episodes of I Love Lucy. Roscher would go on to win two Academy Awards for his work on films like Sunrise and The Yearling. Roscher didn't work on the set of Metropolis, but seeing him in this photo leads me to believe that these three treated the industry as a chance to help make each other better, rather than simply competing against each other. In the competitive world that is the film industry, there was something sort of comforting about seeing these three legends of their craft work together. So this is, you know, one example of correspondence with a colleague from the 50s. So you can see here's a letter that was written to David Bradley just on kind of a yellow legal pad. Uh, and then we also have some carbons of the letters that David Bradley wrote back, which is always nice to have. During his years directing B-films in the 50s and 60s, Bradley worked as a junior director at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. A lot of the letters from the folder came from stationery with the same MGM letterhead at the top. I was just going to say that I think these folders are interesting. They're about his Pierre Gint film, but they're quite a long time after it was made, right? So there's a whole bunch of different documents that relate him getting the film, you know, transferred, making copies of it. And then I, I believe that a lot of this documents basically getting it screened in various places. You could do a whole biography of the afterlife of that film, you know, using this collection. One of my favorite items I saw in the collection was a postcard sent to Bradley that was written from Madrid. The note attached is written from someone named Art, but it's not clear how he was directly connected to Bradley. But if you look closely, you can see that it's actually a homemade postcard written on the back of a photograph of one of Bradley's close friends. That friend in question? You guessed it, Charlton Heston. It's someone who's helping him get films. You can see he stopped in Paris en route and got last underscored copy of Buenel's and the one last H. Lloyd, Harold Lloyd, no more 16 millimeter from film office in future only 8 millimeter. New list has almost all 16 millimeter crossed out. Found same in German camera stores, but only Chaplin Mutual still available in 16 millimeter with German titles. Thought you would get a kick out of this postcard, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Of Charles Heston. Um, yeah. So, so this is interesting, and we could probably figure out who Art was, but it seems that someone who's helping him with sourcing films to collect from different places in Europe, because he mentions being in uh, Paris. This is sent from Madrid, and he also mentioned uh, looking in German camera stores. The fact that Bradley possibly had someone collecting precious items for him from across the world just goes to show how dedicated he was to archiving film history. 
It's almost as though Bradley knew these collections would be studied one day. Like he knew these simple items would become priceless pieces of cinema history. Erica agrees with that notion. In her eyes, by acknowledging these pieces of our history, she believes that it can lead to a better understanding of who these individuals were. That's the kind of great stuff that an archival collection can hold, right? You can take just one folder and it's documents that kind of show you, you know, little glimpses of the relationship between two people and uh, then can allow someone to go and try to fill in all the blanks. Like, who were these people? What was this project? What does this, what do these letters tell me about their relationship and about the thing they were trying to do together? And again, it's just one little folder in a collection that has, you know, more than 100 boxes. 2023 marks 100 years since the invention of 16mm film. In a way, the introduction of 16mm prefigures the introduction of smartphones, since it allowed more people access to record the world around them, essentially turning everyone into a filmmaker. For Eric, these technological advancements have all but rendered physical film as obsolete. I think in some ways it's, it's not relevant. You know, I don't know if any, very many people want to say that, but in some ways it's, it's completely irrelevant. You know, it gave broader access, and um, I think that is important historically, and I think it's more important for, acad for academics and for historians and for cinephiles than it is for your broader audience. Filmmakers don't touch film these days if they're making digital film, and now it's a conscious decision. Am I going to use celluloid, and it's this sort of specialized thing? Although the technological advancements of the film industry are very exciting, Rachel argues that we must not lose sight of how we got to where we are today. In her opinion, 16 and 35 millimeter film play vital roles in telling our stories. Motion picture film, I think around the world, our sort of global film heritage tells such a remarkably strong story, right, of who we are and what we value and what our histories are. I think it's just a really relevant way to, to, to preserve our history. And it's only one that's, you know, a little over a century old. So film is not really that old. But I think most of us take for granted since we walk around recording. Every single person can record our lives now. So, Unlike a digital format, physical film reels are ones that can be restored and updated for future generations. And it's this crucial aspect of the film preservation process that Rachel worries we will be missing out on in the future. So about 10 years ago, there was a, um, a big comprehensive search about U.S. American silent films and how many are lost. So about 85% of our motion picture film heritage from the silent era is gone, completely gone. And this big report that was done even mentioned the Bradley Collection. I only worry about digital for the future, that we're going to lose a lot of things. Digital formats are just so much more fragile. I, I will almost put money on it that 50 years from now, teenagers in the future will not be able to see all the films being made today. I've started to say to everybody, just out it back to film if you want it to be here in 100 years. Like, that's the way to go. I would also say film, motion picture film, is in fact, historically, it is a perfect preservation format. So if stored properly, it will be around for hundreds of years. The theater-going experience has also experienced a major downfall, due in large part to streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, and Disney+. While wider access to movies is an exciting breakthrough, the rise of the streaming industry is costing audiences the opportunity to view films in their intended environment. 
a theater can immerse the audience in the world of the film. This in turn can help audiences better understand where characters on screen are coming from, and it can make the experience that much more enjoyable. During his time with City Lights, Eric had a first-hand look at how a theater can affect the movie-watching experience. When we were there, we were always in back, and you could see people just absorbed in the movie, and it was to watch people grow silent during serious or exciting moments and to laugh at other moments was just extraordinarily gratifying. I think the big screen is really perfect for most of these these um, experiences. I know we had a, a horror film being screened in our screening room um, not too long ago, and the undergraduates, they were like, oh, I've seen this before. And then they were, like, terrified at the end. <laughs> I completely understand what Rachel is saying here. In February, I attended City Lights' screening of Rear Window to get the experience of watching a film on 35mm firsthand, and also because I'm a big fan of Hitchcock's work. Although I had already seen the film, being in that environment completely changed the entire experience. I caught my heart racing multiple times throughout some of the film's most suspenseful scenes. Seeing the original aspect ratio and looking at all the little blemishes in the film made me feel like I was an audience member back when the movie was first released. The print that they used for this screening had so many unique qualities like little dust spots and scratches that you could see up on the screen. The audio for this specific print had odd clicks and popping sounds that you could hear as the film was going through the reels. And if you paid close attention, you could even catch the cue marks up in the corner of the screen, which indicates to the projectionist that a reel change is coming. It was a very good print, but it's, it's imperfect, and that's part of what adds to the specialness. I, you know, digital is actually kind of too perfect in some ways. Whenever the debate comes up, I'm always on the side of keeping movie theaters alive. To me, there's no other movie-watching experience like it. And watching 35mm film gives us a look into our history unlike any other format. Its blemishes are what make it unique. And when you combine the two together, what you get is the ultimate form of movie magic. For Interstates, I'm Jack Lindner. In case I don't see ya, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Jack was an intern at Interstates this past spring. Along with producing this story, he did a great job covering the local theater scene. Thanks, Jack, for all your great work. Okay, it's time for another break. When we come back, we'll talk about how to approach those old movies that you might still like or value, even though they've got some problematic assumptions in them, like, you know, casual racism or homophobia. What do you do? Stay tuned. That's what. Interstates, Alex Chambers. So as my kids have gotten older, there are more and more movies I want to show them that I love. But a lot of them have some pretty sketchy and unexamined attitudes that I'd like not to reinforce. So I called in Alicia Cosma, director of the IU Cinema, for some advice. One of the ways it got started was Back to the Future. My eight-year-old wanted to watch it. Because I'd been talking about how much I liked it. Yeah. And we watched it, and I wasn't surprised by those moments that are difficult because I remembered. But thinking about movies that, you know, depict race in bad ways or, like, controlling or abusive relationships in ways that aren't critical or ironic of those. Yeah. It's something that you have to deal with pretty regularly Mm -hmm. at the cinema. How—what are we supposed to do with that, Alicia? 
Cosma, director of the cinema. <laughs> Give us your wisdom. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'll say it's really difficult in putting any hard and fast boundaries around what we do with films that have images or content or actions or themes that we today would be shocked to see as being passed off as like a normal and natural structure of the film, right? So we're thinking about films that are not being critical of something like racism or sexual assault or domestic abuse. They are simply interwoven into the narrative as normal, right? Or even something like homophobia, right? So every movie from the 80s has the most casual homophobia just interlaced, intertwined in it. And it is just like part part of the culture. And so it can be shocking when we sit down and we watch these films from the past and unfortunately the past is maybe more recent than I want it to be. <laughs> so, and you know, films that I loved as a kid, especially in the eighties, I sit down and I watch them and it's just kind of like, Oh, I don't remember this. Right. Or I don't remember experiencing it in this way because of course I was a kid and it was just part of the culture then. And so it just didn't impact me in, in the same way that it does now being like a thinking conscious, like critical adult. The most important thing when we deal with films like this is determining the value in screening it. It is not revolutionary, nor is it helpful to say films from the past are problematic. (laughs) Films from now are problematic. (laughs) What needs to be considered is, is there a value in watching them? And does that value, one outweigh or override some of the more difficult thematics or contents in the film? And if it does, how then are we addressing those difficult thematics and content in the film? Because the worst thing you can possibly do is just say, oh, there's some bad stuff in here and throw it up on screen and call it a day. What you want to do is engage with that material and think about why it's there, why it still matters that we're watching this film. And how are we going to talk about and work through these issues? There has to be always a way for us to go and reach into our cinematic past and a way for us to reach into our cultural past and engage with that. It's what makes us who we are. It's what makes our culture and our cinema what it is today. So it's not helpful just to like cancel movies that are problematic in some way, shape or form, nor is it helpful just to kind of skip over what's in there. There has to be a type of engagement with it. So one of the ways that we handle this at the cinema is that we have introductions before all of our films and we make a really concerted and careful effort to call out those themes, those actions, those images, those contexts that to us in 2023 raise red flags and we talk about them. And we don't talk about them in a way that's like shaming nor in a way that's endorsing, but it is a reality of the film and it is going to be a reality of the people when they're watching the film, right? And so you want to, again, engage with that, foster conversation around it and talk about like, does this play a role in the film? Is this coming simply from, you know, the cultural zeitgeist at the time that the film was being made? Why is this in here? And why does it matter that we're still watching this film, despite the fact that it has this type of content? I think a lot of this 
quite frankly, it is a canonical film from the silent era, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Now, as a film student, I was subjected, and I say subjected <laughs> because it is like three and a half hours long, <laughs> to watching that movie at least two to three different times in different classes I was in. But they were all for good reasons, right? Yeah. It was all because it is a critical piece of film history. And it exists in film history in a lot of different ways. And it has influenced a lot of different things. And you, you film students, you need to know that, right? But you also then need to recognize it is a film that celebrates the Ku Klux Klan. So you have to be able to do both of those things at once. And I feel like increasingly it's becoming harder for people to hold two things in their head at the same time, particularly when they're contradictory. But that's why we do the intellectual work of cinema studies. And that's why we bring that type of perspective into the programming that we do at the cinema. Now, Birth of a Nation is not a film that's often shown in cinemas today because it's a three-hour silent epic that celebrates the Ku Klux Klan. But we have shown it at the cinema specifically because the Black Film Center and Archive here on campus was doing an event around it, like talking about the legacy of it. So you bring in the experts, you bring in those people who can not just say this movie is damaging and harmful and full of racist stereotypes, but you can say, here's the impact that it had. Here's what we've had to undo because of the mythology of birth of a nation, because of the way that it's been incorporated into cinema histories, because of how it was thought about uncritically often. And also it helps screenings like that also help to repair some of the mythology around the films. It's not like a three hour movie celebrating the Ku Klux Klan was released into the world and everyone was like, oh, what a great movie. There were protests. People didn't like it. Um, you know, there were anti-racists then, just like there's anti-racists now. And so it helps to fill out the story and bring the film essentially just like out of a history book and into the real life context of what it means to be a piece of moving image in culture. Like it is always going to have different forces that are interacting with it. And so for an event like that, it's really important to bring those things up because demystifying a piece of cinema history that has been so lauded for some of the technological inventions that Griffiths did on that film, which are still used today, like dolly shots, for example. There's dolly shots in every movie. One of the first films with dolly shots. Um, you can't, you have to see the 360 degrees of the thing. And so while things like, Birth of a Nation, outside of the context I described, are not normally shown in cinemas. Lots of movies from like when I was a kid, like the eighties, are like you mean in by cinemas, like you mean just for entertainment, just for entertainment purposes, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, like Retro Tuesdays or Flashback Fridays. If you look at any of those, they're like eighties movies, right? Totally, and they're usually the same kind of like eighties movie suspects over and over again. And I have to say, when you're a programmer. There's always something in the back of your head, especially when you remember that movie nostalgically, that you need to stop and check yourself. And at the cinema, we call it doing like a new eyes rewatch. Like, let me watch this with my new eyes. Mm -hmm. I remember at a previous cinema I worked at 
several years ago, we did this special late night event where we were showing Back to the Future. And we got a DeLorean and we had an under the sea prom in the lobby and the theater was packed and we're watching Back to the Future. And I'm like halfway through the movie and I'm like, I hadn't seen that movie at that point, probably in like 15 years. And then I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, Oh, we should have rewatched this before we put it up on screen. Because it was so imbued with all the nostalgia. Yes, because when you're a kid, you don't see the... When you're a kid watching the film for the first time, especially in the context of culture in the 1980s, casual homophobia, casual sexual harassment, casual racism was just a part of the milieu at that time. And it is a part of Back to the Future. But it was nothing that was particularly um, something that stood out when I was like 10 watching that movie. But I think there's another thing that you were getting at with the watching it with the, what is it, with the new eyes? With new eyes, With new eyes. It sounded like there was another question too, which was not just like, being able to notice all those things that we've been talking about, but also, does this movie have anything else going on that's worth? Yeah, like, does it hold it so, up as a movie? Is does it, it hold up? And so right. that's the question we say: Does it hold up? That is actually the exact question. So in the fall semester, we did a study break movie marathon where we just showed movies for twelve hours for free, so students could take a break from studying for finals and come in and watch movies and. Brittany Friesner, who's the managing director of the cinema, and I got really excited about showing this movie called Summer School because the theme of the marathon was like movies about like the last days of school. And Summer School is a movie from, I think, like 1985. And we both remembered it very fondly. But it is a movie from 1985 about a bunch of kids who the movie frames as like, quote unquote, failures and sticks them in summer school with Mark Harmon, who's like a gym coach turned summer school teacher. And we both said, one of us has to watch this. <laughs> and so we got the the Blu-ray and Brittany took it home and she watched it. And she came into work the next day and she said, holds up. Actually, holds up surprisingly well and is way more progressive than I remember it being. Wow. And so I rewatched it and I was like, you're absolutely right. Holds up. And there's a value in showing this movie, and especially for this film, because this was really surprising to me. A film that I don't think either of us expected it was going to hold up, (laughs) but neither of us expected that it was going to be as progressive as it actually was. And so I was like, no, this is not the type of 80s movie that's normally shown in like the nostalgia category. And I think it's really important that we do that because what we don't want to get into the habit of is generalizing all film that comes out at a certain point of all being the same way. And so we showed it and people really liked it and almost no one had heard of it, which is fine. And they were they were into it and it was really unexpected. So, yeah, watching something with new eyes like what don't I remember about this film? What is important about this film? Is it important enough that we want to be showing it today? And how are we contextualizing? How are we framing it? Like, what is the what is the need for this? And how are we communicating that need? Okay. So that all makes sense, I think, in terms of like programming for the cinema. There's a part of me that wants to ask this stuff as a parent. Part of the question I'm interested in is summer school surprised you by holding up in a political way better than you expected. 
what about a movie that you maybe have nostalgia for? You'd watch it with new eyes, but you're not necessarily looking to see where it lands kind of progressive versus, you know, retrograde or whatever. But just does the story still hold up? Is it still like a good movie, even if it has these elements? Do I want to show it? Do I want to show it to my kids, Alicia? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hard question, but I think that it's a question that parents ask themselves about most things. Of course. I will say I regularly get calls from my sister. I have a 12-year-old niece. And I regularly get calls from my sister saying, can Viviana watch X? She recently called me and said, can Viviana watch Outer Banks? And I said, absolutely not. Which is a current (laughs) show that is airing on Netflix. I said, absolutely not. Maybe when she's 16, she can watch Outer Banks. And she called me uh, not that long ago and said, can Viviana watch Clue? And I said, yeah, actually she can. Yeah. She can. I think she can watch it with her. But yeah, 100 percent. There are some conversations to be had. There's some conversations to be had, but they're good conversations. And so that's what I think is the most important thing is that you want to be engaging in the material like you all good parents do anyway. Engage with the material that you're consuming with your children. But I do think it's important to share those things with your kids because they're part of who you are as a cultural person. And I know no one references movies as much as I do, but even if you (laughs) reference them or talk about them at some point, your kids are going to be interested in what they are. So I think it's a, it's an important thing to do. You, that's part of your cultural persona and you're passing that down to your kids, whether you know it or not. And so you might as well bring them into the fold and talk to them about why this mattered to you, why you want to share it with them, have those conversations with them. But it also is, I think, with anything that comes down with parenting, it's kid-dependent. It's totally kid-dependent. But I wouldn't ever necessarily exclude your kids from participating in the stuff that you love when you were a kid because that helps them connect with you more. And it also then brings new traditions into families, too. And if they were anything like me, I was not allowed to watch tons of stuff when I was younger. But I watched it anyway. <laughs> I found ways to watch it anyway. <laughs> and you know what? A lot of that stuff would have been better if I had listened to my parents and, you know, watched it with them or right. waited to watch it when I was a little older. Like, I didn't need to watch A Clockwork Orange when I was 11. But I did. And I shouldn't have. And I should have watched it with an adult. <laughs> um. So it's good. I think it's a really great way of bringing families together, but also making kids feel like they're part of the cultural conversation that they can be as engaged with and thoughtful about the culture that they consume that adults can. And that actually we want them to be. Right. And they, they need to learn that kind of earlier rather than later. Yeah. And giving them practice having those conversations. Yeah. Even if at the beginning of those conversations... You know, I'm remembering friends of mine when we were growing up in the 80s and 90s, and there were their mom would tell would say to them, "What is this commercial about, kids?" And their answer would always have to be, "Sex, mom." <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be even the critique can become a little rote sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> but it was also valuable. So. Tell your kids I said they can watch whatever they want, <laughs> as long as they watch it with you. Cool. Do you have any other anything else you want to add? 
I would just say don't be afraid of going back and revisiting, like revisiting the culture of your past, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid of finding ways to, if it was meaningful for you, to bring it into your your contemporary life. I mean, we've all made dumb cultural mistakes, but those mistakes are part of who we are now as like living, breathing, critical beings. And so allowing, especially kids or even like young adults who are like in a space where they're making their own choices, usually totally outside of any, you know, (laughs) adults eyes or approval, help them figure out like what works for them and what doesn't, like where they want to be and and where they don't, what they want to be watching and, and what they don't. It just gives them a healthier relationship with what is quite frankly an ever-present media landscape. They're, they can escape it. So I think the most beneficial thing to do is for us to to help them to learn how to work with it and how to make it work for them. Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks, Alicia. You're welcome. Alicia Cosma. She runs the IU Cinema, and her book, The Cinema of Stephanie Rothman, came out in 2022. You can check out my full-length conversation with Alicia, where we discuss Stephanie Rothman's radical filmmaking in the Interstate's archives. And you've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at WFIU.org slash interstates. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. All right, time for some found sound. That was, as far as I could tell, the creaking of trees, recorded at Red River Gorge, mid-December 2022. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Mm